Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 67. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing leadership and abuse in the church with Amy Bird, author of Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and Dr. Michael Bird, who is academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College, Melbourne. Team members from the two cities on the episode include Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, Jennifer Guo, Grace Sengalang Ng, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So what do you all make of our conversation with Amy and Mike? So Mike Bird and Amy Bird have been doing a YouTube video slash podcast that they like to call Birds of a Feather. So we were excited to have Birds of a Feather join us um, on the two cities this week. And we wanted to talk to them about the issue of abuse of leadership, particularly in light of the different cases of abuse that have come to light among high profile leaders in the church recently. So we wanted to talk to them about what are some of the theological ideas at play that are allowing for and maybe even perpetuating some of the abuse. And then also what are some of the cultural factors, particularly within the evangelical world that might be perpetuating some of these things. Yeah, I also liked the way that they talked about um, advocacy, both having um, structures in place for victims, um, but also um, how to walk with victims who are yeah, suffering from abuse. So I think that was really helpful just to hear um, their perspective on that. Yeah, I think one of the things is that both Mike and Amy really bring a concern for the church, for Amy especially as, as a victim of abuse herself. The concern that she has really resonates with um, where she has come from and the, what she's gone through. Of course, this is a really heavy and painful topic, but Mike brought his uh, characteristic sense of humor that um, periodically lightened things up. All right, and here's our conversation with Mike and Amy. It's great to have you back, Amy. Oh, thanks. It's really good to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Can we officially call you a friend of the pod? I would love that. That would be great. Brilliant. Maybe Brilliant. maybe frenemy. Maybe frenemy. <laughs> No way. I'm a true friend. And, and Mike, it's wonderful to finally have you on the pod. I know. I was going to say about time. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it is. It's good to, I'm a, it's good to be, um, I feel like I, the thing, the weird thing is I know like so many people here in different ways and it weirds me that you all know each other. Like I know <laughs> Jad through writing studies. I know Chris is kind of, you know, the local Padawan. I know, um, uh, Amber from North Carolina. I know Amy from, you know, women Bible theology, Zondervan, and I know Jen um, through you know, social media. So it's really weird having all these different people I know in different ways suddenly conglomerate in like the one spot. And it's even weird that that I'm, I'm I, well, I mean, you people know each other independently of me, which is kind of weird as well. It's kind of like I'm not actually the center of your relational universe. Um, <laughs> Talk about you behind your back, though. Yeah. <laughs> We we also have some some new friends for you to, to yes. meet and get acquainted Grace, with on this call. Well, and getting reacquainted with Josh. 
Well, so today what we wanted to discuss with the two of you is primarily bad leadership and bad bad leaders. Uh, in the last you know couple of years, we've seen a number of major headline examples of this that have been really hard to stomach. And in particular, uh, most recently with what we found out about Ravi Zacharias. Um, just wondering, how does news like this hit the two of you? I, I'm, I'm afraid I've become pretty cynical, <laughs> I think. Um, it's, it's getting easier and easier to believe when I hear these. And um, it's really given me a bad taste for, you know, big parachurch organizations in general. I mean, I know that we're hearing, you know, also from, from big churches as well. But, um, you know, just from the, the bit that I've been through um, with some abuse from officers in my own denomination, I hear from a lot of um, a lot of women from unknown churches all over the place who have gone through terrible spiritual abuse. And so it's it's representative not only of, of big organizations or big churches, but um, you know, there's small unknown churches all over the place where this is happening. So um, I just really think that there needs to be more exposure, really, of, of what's going on and, and actual reform happening so that maybe, maybe we won't hear as many cases like this. Be- not because there's going to be less evil in the world, but because um, godly people who can do something about it will. Yeah, my, my response was initially like, oh, really? Is, it, is, it, is, it, is this really happening? You know, am I one of the top apologists? But as the evidence came out and it, it became clearer and it became dark i mean it was it was really really bad the kind of stuff that this we're not talking about a guy who had like a a moment of like infidelity we're talking about a guy who seems to have been something along the lines of a serial um predator you know and so this is this is this is like really bad stuff and you think my initial thoughts are how could this happen how could no one know and why would why would the organization want to conceal this, play it down? I mean, they got some, when you get people to sign NDAs, I mean, that is the smoking gun that something bad has gone down and you are really trying to cover it up. And what I think we see is some of these huge organizations, whether they're churches, colleges, or ministries, they've got this massive donor base and all these sort of followers and adherents and rivers of gold of money and donations are pouring in. And it's like, you know, whatever we do, you know, we, we can't stop this. Okay. So let him have his little weird fetish in the corner. Uh, let's just keep this a secret. Let's just keep this going because, you know, because the, the platform is so big and we're doing such good work, such noble work. So, you know, in the name of the cause, the kingdom, uh, you know, we've got to keep this going. And, you know, and as, as I like to say, if success is an idol, cover-ups become a sacrament. You know, that, that, that's what I think. That's, that's the saying I have. You know, if success is an idol, cover-ups will always be a sacrament. And that's, that's what, I've, what I've seen and what I've learned from, um, you know, the, these various things. Thanks, Mark and Amy. Um, I really resonate, Amy, with your... Uh your reflections on being becoming a bit cynical or you know feeling like this is a bit uh like gee another one sort of thing uh last night i was chatting with a friend uh, who who actually listens to this podcast so he'll recognize who it is 
and he was saying that um, just you know reflecting on uh, the person who brought him to Christ and the when he said that that phrase I, I, I saw something about the friend who brought me to Christ and uh, I mentored him my mind instantly went to oh okay so something's happened with this person who has men- mentored him and there's been some uh, something's gone on there or something like that because I realized that when as I was uh, as I scroll through Facebook and I see if I come across a post which shows you know a senior scholar or a um, a senior church leader and you see their face on on Facebook I don't even get to the the description before I go what's gone wrong now uh, that's my instant mm. presumption they're either dead they've they passed away so when we've had so many people um, so many scholars pass away recently um, or there's been a massive scandal and I can't decide which one it is. And I get there and it's like a happy birthday. Um, and, and in this case, it was, um, you know, he was just saying that this, this guy who had mentored him, his, you know, one of, one of the, their kids was in, high, in like senior high school now. And it was like, he was reflecting on how long it had been um, that, uh, of this mentoring process. It was a great story, but, you know, somewhere in my brain, I was just like, oh, this is going to be a scandal happening. And I, I think I really resonate with that because I think, we see it happen so often. I mean, from the year that I met, first met Mike was the year that Mark Driscoll, um, all of Mark Driscoll stuff came to light. Uh, and since then, it just feels like a downward slope. And so I'm just wondering, Amy, for you, um, how, do you um, how do you reflect on, on these processes as, um, you know, trying to wrest yourself out of this? Like, how, how does this work for you um, in, um, in, in reflecting on these in a healthy way? Well, I think that, <laughs> you know, I, just being in it myself, um, it was shocking to me um, the effects of spiritual abuse. Like, I think consider myself to have tough skin. I thought that you know I wanted to confront it and and try to handle things in a godly way. Like, I could logically tell myself what was going on here, but there's so much crazy making in the process, and um, and it also it physiologically affects you and you don't realize that that's going to happen. So I had to, you know, really ask myself like, what is happening to me here? And so learning about it was extremely helpful for me. I don't know if everybody's uh, process is like I do, but it really helped me find reality and um, know that I'm not crazy and to be able to name things and help. It helps me to be able to navigate through things better. But um, I think that we need the freedom to lament. Um, And I think that's something that helps us from becoming overly cynical then, where you're just always assuming the worst in people. Um, But to be able to really, you know, handle what is happening to you and and take that to God and, and, and to godly friends and be able to lament, spend time doing that. Um, but I, I think you also need to find some safe connections, uh, good friendships. I know one book that a line in uh, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is just a really excellent book on trauma, but it's, it's a secular book. It's really good. But um, he talks about how important social support is and how it's like the most powerful protection against becoming totally overwhelmed um, with stress and trauma. Like you need good friendships. You're often losing friends <laughs> when you speak up and tell the truth. Um, and I and I certainly lost a, a lot of what I thought were good friends. So but God provides new people and, and, and old friends in new ways. So he, he always gives and that's so good. So I think, you know, 
being with a support system, asking the hard questions. Like we have to have the freedom to be able to do that. So many people, their faith is rocked when they've been abused, whether it's sexual abuse, which is also going to be spiritual abuse in the church or, um, you know, a different type of spiritual abuse. I think another helpful thing is, is to seek beauty. I mean, that kept me sane. And I just listened to your all's podcast with Esther Meek, and I was all excited because I love her. And um, I love that talk about beauty. Um, that is something that has really helped me to heal is to just, you know, I love the outdoors. I love to hike and I live near the Potomac River. Um, so like those kind of, and, you know, just gardening, things like that, um, seeking beauty. And I love how Esther Meek um, connects that with discovering reality at the same time, because it's so true. You know, reality can, reality in the simple world can really suck. <laughs> and as you're going through that trauma of that, to, to see, you know, to have an eschatological imagination where you are completely connecting those dots. Um, Robert Jensen in his uh, commentary on the Song of Songs, um, he defines beauty as realized eschatology. And I just think that's such a good definition because it's, you know, this present glow, he says, of, of, of the sheer goodness that is to come. So it's like we're getting these glimpses of eternity and beauty. And so I think that's just com completely healing. And then we need to learn how to, I mean, I know I needed to learn how to do healthy confrontation. Um, I hate confrontation and I like, that's been the story of my life in the last two years as I've had to confront things. So I've really, you know, my husband's really good at it. He doesn't like it, but he's good at it. And he's really modeled it and helped me in that way. But um, yeah, and, and being in the word, I know for me and everybody, you know, finds their, their area, but the song of songs is just so deeply ministered to me through pain. So I just feel like, you know, God meets us and he, and he, his concrete presence, you know, you really, I think can be more in tune to that sometimes when you're suffering. For me, the, the other big thing as well is well, a lot of women have found themselves in these, these positions of being disadvantaged, abused, not believed. And the, the sort of the men or the institution who you think would look after them, protect them against abuse have done the opposite they've played played the role of antagonist and that that is that and that is the the for me the really weird thing it's the okay? worst part it, of it too it, it really is truly is part of it. yeah especially in your context you think obviously these people holding the office of elder and the presbyterian church will be you know open to reason and recognize abuse for what it is and you you get the opposite uh, in, in a lot of cases. Now, I know you do have some some defenders, some voices of sanity around, particularly around you, Amy, but a lot of uh, the cases, it's been these elders, people who are meant to be spiritually mature and pastorally caring for the flock and for the men and women have been uh, the, the worst prosecutors of real vindictive, angry and nasty stuff. Uh, and and that, that is what I find even, even more, um, dare I say, even more insidious you know, when, when, when pastors act more like wolves than they do like shepherds. Yeah, even basic um, lay people, <laughs> brothers and sisters in Christ, we, you know, we have the sacred siblingship. And, and one of the, the big things about being a sibling is to be an advocate for the other person and, and, and to promote their holiness and goodness. 
Um, and then you would think even more so as a church officer, because, you know, they are to shepherd you. They, they are to feed the sheep and that is their job. That's what they're authorized to do. Um, and, you know, they're to model Christ, our true advocate, our elder brother. So, um, you know, and I think that's another part of healing as well is to advocate for others, you know, the way that it hasn't been for you. Amy, you talk about how, um, what is your, what is your quote? Like the way that we care for women or treat women is revelatory of our eschatology or is it the other way around? What's your... Yeah, um, I can't remember exactly how I said it now, but yeah, the way that we treat our um, women really reveals what our eschatological expectations are. Because um, in our very typology, you know, women um, show forth, you know, Zion, you know, the collective bride of Christ, the whole thing. So, you know, she should be elevated in a lot of ways. Not and so, instead of dehumanized and depersonalized and um, her very dignity and personhood is taken away. So I, I think that the way that we, we treat our women, and, and, and again, you know, back to the Song of Songs, we hear the, the groom twice telling her, let me hear your voice. Let me see your face because your face is beautiful and, and your voice is lovely. Um, so he is, he gives her the freedom. He, he's actually asking, you know, for her voice. And we get the opposite in the church a lot of the time. Yeah, and I was thinking about even with these recent scandals, and this isn't the the reason for the downfall for everybody, but for pretty much everybody, this is at least an element of it. And that is that there's some kind of abuse of women that's going on, whether it's a spiritual abuse and kind of a, an iron-fisted leadership, a bullying and leadership that's directed oftentimes at women in particular, um, or it's actual sexual abuse of women. Um, but there does seem to be this pattern uh, that we're seeing across these different examples where it, it's a, a mistreatment of women in particular that you're seeing. So I'm wondering if you can you know, speak to that or if you both have insights of, about that. And then maybe what are some of the structures in our culture that are allowing for that to happen and that are in some ways also creating um, opportunities for that to happen? Yeah, I think that definitely um, what we're seeing, what I've experienced a lot and, and uncovered a lot of and, you know, just reading <laughs> what's marketed to uh, the, the wider evangelical church is this underlying theology of male superiority and um, this kind of metaphysical um, authority inherent in men and, um, and, and that women are more, more metaphysically uh, subordinate to men. And that's a whole theology starting with, you know, the way that, um, you know, and it's a lot of coming out of the complementarian teaching, um, the way that they tell the story of creation, um, you know, their interpretation of that woman being created second makes her inferior. Um, they, they kind of put velvet over the Aristotelian <laughs> language, but, but they're saying the same thing. They give her this ontological role. So role that is something that's supposed to be, you know, a, a part that you play um, becomes, you know, part of her very essence and her very being, and it's subordinate. Um, so right from their, you know, creation and, and on through the story, um, their whole meta narrative is is has this um, unorthodox doctrine of man and woman, 
and and but not only that they they teach an unorthodox teaching about the doctrine of god as well in order to perpetuate this um you know and that was uncovered in more in 2016 with the trinity debate um you know using the eternal subordination of the sun or functional subordination of the sun um and then that is in so many resources it's you know saturated in women's ministry resources it's in children's resources it's for teenagers it's in our study bibles um it's in the men's ministry stuff, it's all over the place. I can't tell you how many um, men who are pastors now or you know, just getting out of seminary told me that you know, when, when we addressed this on um, my blog at the time and this whole Trinity debate you know, rose out of it, they were in seminary learning the eternal subordination of the sun and that's what they thought it was. You know, they just drank it in. Um, and didn't question it. And then all of a sudden they had all these, these questions, which is wonderful that, that, that they were able to, to do that. But, um, you know, our, our theology teaches this stuff. So if, if this is what our theology is teaching, then it's no wonder then that we're going to see all this abuse. Yeah, I, at the structural side, I think one of the biggest issues is the type of accountability that you have in your leadership structures. Too many churches and parachurch ministries is where you have the uber alpha male um, and then with a board, not of peers equals advisors, but in some cases surrounded by sycophants um, who have this sort of hero like worship. And I can I, I know people, uh, particularly in the US, who have been elders in some of these churches. And it, I mean, you could have like 80 elders in these churches, but they are just they are just there to say yes. And if anyone says, you know, actually, Pastor Bob or actually, Tim, uh, I think that's a really bad idea. Then what happens is a group of the elders will then take this person aside and say nobody says no to the man. So you've either got to back down or you've got to resign. And so and, and, and I've seen this happen. So there is there is like no accountability uh, if you're surrounded by sycophants. You know, uh, and and, and you know, there are some things I've heard pastors say. I think no one stood up to this person and said, you know, yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, it's just you think no one said to you, I think that's a bad idea. Or even if they say something that's outright heresy, no one stood up and said, you know, boss, I don't think that's a good idea. The other thing I think you really need is at every level of leadership, you've got to have women in the room. Okay. Uh, yeah. at, at, at every level. Now, even, even if you are a complementarian, okay, even mm -hmm. if you are a complementarian, and I, and I don't want to go around just, you know, just bashing the um, the compies, uh, <laughs> as I like to call it. I don't, I don't just go and make this a compie bashing fest, a fest, but even if you are a complementarian, you know, um, soft, moderate, whatever, whenever you're making decisions, you can at least have a thoughtful, respected woman in the room who's not just the pastor's wife who will sit there knitting quietly so you can say, yes, we did have a woman in the room. Have an actual woman who's they're going to be an advocate. And especially if you're ever talking about women uh, or, or anything to do with them. Okay. And then I think you've also got to have some sort of process for if a woman has a complaint, um, that there is a fair and independent process where she does not have to stand in a room with seven other men and talk about what's happened to her. You know, I, I think that that's the two, uh, that's, that's for me, the three things. Um, don't have sycophants for, um, for, for leadership peers um, or have women in leadership at every level and have some very fair form 
where if women are abused or mistreated, there is a place that she can go to where she doesn't feel like she's going to get badgered by the patriarchy. Yeah, I've been suggesting that in Presbyterian circles a lot. Um, you know, you got a woman who's, let's say, being abused by her husband <laughs> or, you know, by one of the elders. Um, how intimidating it is to go into this, you know, closed room of men in authority. Um, so, so many of them just don't do it. And then yeah, half the, the time, you know, they get sent back anyway. But, you know, yeah. even even with those things in place and even with, you know, which I thought the Presbyterian government had safeguarded a lot of this with their book of church order and everything. You know, I found that it isn't so. That, that system is does not help the vulnerable and it comes at the cost of the victims. And, and, and the thing is, you know, like I was just talking to one woman who went through horrible spiritual abuse in her church and, you know, she was married to a very abusive man and um, he did criminal things. Um, the elders knew and they kept sending her back to him, uh, you know, cause he apologized. So uh, he repented and, you know, he can continue to do the same stuff over and over. And um, she's supposed to go back. And she said that some people said to her when she was trying to, you know, get some, an, an advocate somewhere, because she had no support. Um, they're like, well, you know, the, you, you have to use the formal system. You have to file a complaint against your elders. And she said, well, who in the world is going to help me file this complaint? Because it'll get thrown out if you don't do it right. And nobody knows how to do them. <laughs> We're never taught that in membership class. Then who's going to drive me to, you know, the next state over to the presbytery meeting? Who's going to take care of my children and my responsibilities? And of course, her husband's going to show up. The same man that she's supposed to go home to. How's that going to go? It, there's no way that she can even use the system. That's right, Amy. And I think this once again indicates the superiority of the Episcopal system of government, the most perfect <laughs> system of church government delivered by Christ to St. Peter and to the church and these non-conformist presbyteries. Is that even a word? Presbytery. Is that even a word? Is that even a word? Presbytery. Yeah. Presbytery. Sounds like cemetery, not, but so with sure, more Mike. presence. <laughs> I'm not so sure, Mike. Um, I, I was talking to someone the other day who is in an Episcopal um, a church with an Episcopal mode of leadership. And she described the process of trying to file a complaint with, um, with a the professional standards organization in her church as something akin to Esther going before uh, the king in <laughs> mm. uh, and, you know, praying that uh, the king would extend his scepter towards her such that her complaint may be heard. Uh, I don't know, know if necessarily we have it all together, but I mean, yeah, the, the situation you describe, Amy, um, I know some people who have said, well, we need the Esther type of system. Um, ex very explicitly, we, we need mm -hmm. to be able to use Esther as a model of going before authorities to be able to level complaints, except for the fact that the, I mean, the model that we have in Esther is completely abusive, really. Right. I mean, it is, it is. It's it the is, king's concubine. I mean, for a start, I mean, I think that, that I think the Esther analogy is going to break down a bit and I, uh, I can't imagine. Should that it, cost. it should cost the king, yeah. you know, not. You know, the leaders are to lay down their lives for the sheep, not the, the, the vulnerable coming forward shouldn't have to be the one who has to pay the cost for the whole thing. And that's what's well, happening. And even in yeah. circles that are not like that don't have the Episcopalian model, uh, more of the Baptist circles, for example, what it's governed by is really the, the good old boys club. 
It's really the, the bro networking system. And that has its own challenges because what happens is it's not governed even by theology. It's actually very theologically thin and it's very connections high. So it's who's connected to who and who's friends with who and who can get promoted by who. And then as a result of that, there also comes this protection system. Um, and there often tends to be a suspicion of women because a woman, a woman's accusations will be the downfall of a man's ministry. So we have to protect his ministry and his reputation from these female accusations so that he can continue to have this ministry and advance the kingdom. And so there's, there's an inherent suspicion of women as people who are trying to, I mean, it's like lady folly, right? They're all trying to take down the man. And I love how Amy's talking about the woman in Song of Songs, because it's, it's actually not like that at all. It there's, but there is this inherent suspicion of women as being that which is going to be the downfall of the man. So you have to protect against them at all costs and your bros help you do that. I, th- I think that's exactly right. The The main sociology here is not church governance. Now, whether you're Episcopal, Presbyterian uh, or Baptist, the, the main thing is that the the bro network where you've got your um conference buddies, your golfing buddies, the people you hang out with social media. It's like and, and you get things either dismissed like there's no way Billy would have done that. There's no way Bob would have done that. OK, fine. He, he'd had one slip up. But, you know, let him who has never gawked at the Victoria catalog secrets, Victoria secret cast the first stone, you know, you, you, you get kind of, uh, and it then gets justified or mitigated again, without theological rationale, but of this sort of um, mutually reinforcing, um, you know, uh, you could call it a, a Praetorian guard of mutual masculinity, you know, which, which is, which is kind of protecting each other from these, uh, from women who are either the, the, the tempters, you know, the various um, temptations out there, or that's the Jezebel who's out to get me, you know, that, that type of a thing. And called that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think also that um, it's not only that you have this, this bro, this bro network, but there's this also um, our ideas about authority and power. Um, I have found that the worst possible thing to do to a man is to take his authority away. And it's very interesting because, you know, most, most people who go to church are lay people <laughs> and we live pretty good lives. <laughs> you know, not having this ecclesial authority, um, we're doing just fine. So it's just interesting when um, an, an office bearer does something disqualifying. Well, at first, how hard it is for repentance from office bearers. You know, sometimes all it takes is repentance, you know, and um, it's just not there. And it's the very thing that they're supposed to be giving us, the good news. They don't seem to believe themselves. And, and that's horrifying. But then um, also, if, if they were to disqualify themselves um, from office, then that's where the fight begins. Or even if you were to approach, you know, otherwise good men um, about this person disqualifying themselves, um, I mean, that will be the very last option. You know, it's it's you have to go through a whole lot to get to that and um, a whole lot of pain. <laughs> and so you just think, wow, why is this so important to keep this man in authority who's hurting people? What, I don't understand what our view is here with that. Why, why is it the worst thing to, to say, you know what? You need to be shepherded. 
you know, um, instead of shepherding over people right now. Also, I think what has to happen, though, is the process of shepherding has to start. There has to be space and place for it to happen at the very beginning of whatever is going on. So mm. from the point where temptation or whatever, like so many of these leaders just fall because of things that just build, 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 and then they do something dumb and then they cover it up and then they cover it up and then people around them cover it up. And I've seen in church ministry over the past you know years that I've been in, just the lack of the space and place for people to be real and accountable with each other and also engage in confession when things are hitting their hearts. Yeah. So it doesn't become, doesn't head into that track of moral failure or other kind of failure. So I think I've recognized that in the church is missing and our willingness to even create that space. Does anyone here have an example of what you would call like best practices? Uh, do you know anywhere where they've changed their leadership structures to create something that there is more accountability or there is certainly a a forum or an advocate or a system where women can challenge uh, the system or bring people to account. I wonder if we should talk in, in, about our system. I mean, we, ha we have a thing in, in the uh, Anglican Diocese of Melbourne. We have a, our own company called Kiora. There is a, a, like a, a, like a separate umpire who is an arm's length from the bishop, okay? And if you have allegations of, of spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, anything criminal, you can go to them. Okay, and yeah, and that they do pass things on to the police. So at one level, this this is an independent authority within our sort of organisation. Now it may well be imperfect, uh, but it, it, it's it's better than I think what it was. Whether you really just have to go to one of the leading, um, um, you know, pastors or you know, priests or bishops and try to get it sorted that way. I will say that the the Presbyterian government has some things sort of in place for that like a visitation committee that you could you know request or moderators to come in um or you know they always love to have their study committees but um i've heard nightmares about about inviting them in too because they know each other and a lot of the time so um do they have any women do they have any women in no these? no and so often the women who are the victims like you were saying earlier, are not consulted at all. Um, you know, and just going through a trial process, a couple trial processes in my denomination, I'm lucky enough to have been through. You know, I was shocked to see that there's not even during a trial, like a victim impact statement, which, you know, the secular world has, but uh, the church doesn't. So like the one trial that I was in, um, the council, kind of brought, put that in himself by asking me, you know, how has this impacted you um, spiritually, emotionally, and professionally? So he asked that question specifically, but that's not part of the process. And it was objected to by the de defense, you know, several times, you know, in, in cutting me off while I was speaking. And then the other trial, I was very much, um, you know, in the specifications of these charges, I was never, you know, called by the prosecution as a witness or to anything like that. But I was, they did summon my, my session of elders and asked them to summon me as a witness for the defense. So basically they were going to bring me in and tear me apart. <laughs> and my elders would not do that, of course, but um, so I was absent from this trial, but it was like I was on trial. 
with what was said on the floor. Well, well there's nothing the better than for women than trial and absentia. I mean, there's some real, <laughs> yeah. so, there's I some mean, real I serious just, justice going down. Yeah, I was called some pretty bad things. Um, so you just you just think, wow, the, the very, you know, the not even consult, consulting. But, you know, I, I think that there is this point now where it would just be helpful to hire an outside group of professionals like Grace, you know, to per, people who are professionally trained to investigate these cases and, and are um, they specialize in churches, you know, in spiritual abuse. And not only can they do investigations, but they can also give assessments. Because, you know, I don't think that when I say that all these flaws in the Presbyterian system, I don't think, oh, Presbyterianism is, is you know, a terrible government. Um, I just think there needs to be some reform. And, and some of it, you know, could be fairly simple. <laughs> And, and including the women in, like you say, or getting some outsiders. Like if, if you're going to make an, an accusation against an elder, it's probably better to have a, a different group of men come in than your, your other elders who are, you know, best buddies with him to handle this. That's exactly the problem. I would say not just bringing in some independent men, but also bringing in some men and some women. Mm -hmm. um, th th that I think is the challenge. I think you could ideally, you know, do you know reform a a system you know whether it's you know baptist or presbyterian to bring all of them could probably use some reforming with the news that's coming out everywhere i mean i don't think abuse has favored one denomination over another exactly exactly and so finding some sort of mechanism to advocate for victims to ensure a uh, impartiality and fairness of an investigation process without adding to the victimization of um, yeah. someone who's bringing, and I think that's the key thing. And I think that's what you would point out, which doesn't increase to the victimization because otherwise, otherwise the, the process itself becomes a further form of abuse. And oh, that is oh, exactly, it definitely does. Yeah. And that's exactly what you rule out that the process of making a complaint should not be a way of empowering abusers and miscarriage of justice or in or increasing the malignancy of a particular type of masculine authority. Yeah, thanks so much, um, Amy and Mike, for being here and sharing those thoughts, especially about um, the need to have those structures in place. Um, another question I have is um, if we do have friends who we recognize um, that there may be abuse going on, how would we walk with them through that? Let's say they don't have um, that structure, you know, to go to. Um, and like, they may share some things that are happening and they might not even be like fully aware that they are in a situation of abuse. Do you have any advice on how to walk with them through that? Oh boy, that's a, that's a hard one. I, th I think the first thing is every case is different. Like if you've got a friend who you think is in a, uh, an abusive marriage, depends on the level of abuse. I, I do have friends or, or sometimes um, students who I think are in some unhealthy re relationship dynamics going on. And you've got to think about how to intervene, the best way to intervene and, 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 how, and, how, and how to do that in a way without getting everyone offside. Uh, in extreme cases, it's, it's you know, pretty easy because you can point out this, this, is, this is just really bad, it's wrong. And you can talk to the person um, who you suspect is being victimized. Um, if they've got like a, another a person in their life, uh, like if it's a, a good a good minister, um, I think that can be a, a good a good person. If you go to if they don't believe you, 
then go to someone they respect, okay, and let them know the situation. Hopefully that other person will then be a kind of a, a, an advocate as well to save them from further abuse and, and anything else that's going on. So in my somewhat limited pastoral repertoire, and, and as Chris will know, um, uh, pastoral skills are not my forte. That, that's the things I found helpfully, just just gently and and lovingly um, trying to offer advice to, in, into people, into their lives. And if it, it doesn't seem to connect, maybe find someone they do respect. Explain your view of the situation. Everyone's got a different perspective, but explain your view of the situation. And hopefully that other person as well um, can, can speak into their life and, and, and help them. Yeah, it's definitely case sensitive. Obviously, if it's... Um... If it's bad, you know, physical or sexual abuse, and they don't seem responsive, like um, I think authorities do need to be notified somehow. Um, but you know, I, I've walked with with so many people, <laughs> and still do, who are in very unhealthy, abusive situations. You know, marriages especially, and um, that's hard because you know if there isn't this physical pattern of physical abuse. Um, but you know they they've been beaten down so much emotionally and spiritually and um you know i i try to share what what i see i i listen um and you know there's people who who definitely know that it's abusive but they're choosing you know whether it's for the kids or uh, you know they don't think they're good enough for anything else you know these kind of things and and it's hard because um then you have to to bear their burden with them <laughs> and and be a good friend and i you know that looks different all the time and is is extremely difficult um and i think it takes a lot of uh, maturity and prayer and also kind of bringing others in hopefully and you know asking if you can do that but um you know they have to make those decisions for themselves and and even when they're ready to you know so often they'll They'll come forward, you know, to the church leadership or they'll, um, you know, confront their spouse or, or whatever it is and that they're going to make these steps if, if this doesn't happen. And, and then they come back, you know, <laughs> because it's just so hard, but they need, they need love. They need people to love them. And most of all, you know, what I try to do is not, you know, that whole story of the gospel of, of Christ, our, our true bridegroom, you know, who became flesh, <laughs> um, died for us our eternal unremitted advocate right now, even at the right hand of the father um, and just speaking of his great love and, and their value and, and, and their dignity and their meaning um, because they need to hear, they need to be spoken into with the gospel so much. And, and those words, uh, you know, and again, in the song of songs, <laughs> the words that the, the groom says to the bride are just so wonderful. Um, and, and they're so um, life-giving. And, and they need to hear that stuff. So earlier in the conversation, Amy, you mentioned that you weren't surprised when the Robbie scandal came out, not only because it happens so often in these high profile cases that we hear about, but also that you've also experienced um, spiritual abuse. And I've also experienced um, spiritual abuse and sexual harassment. And so after I experienced some of these things myself, when a scandal came out, it hit me in a very different way. And it was very triggering. And especially um, a number of you have mentioned how when these things happen, people don't believe women and they defend the predators. It happened with Robbie, even when that uh, report finally came out and it seemed to settle the issue. And I found myself like 
trying to stand with those women because I had experienced not being believed. And so it was just all very triggering. And I, I think you and I were aware that this is quite common, right? It's way beyond yeah. the things that we actually hear about. And so I guess from your perspective, what can you give some advice maybe for those who have experienced it in terms of how to how to navigate when these things come out? Because like I said, I I find it very triggering. And when I try when I've tried to like speak for the women or like argue with the men who don't believe them or who are still defending the predators, it just kind of like takes me back to that, that, that place uh, when I went through it myself. And, and I'm sure that this yeah. is common, you know? Yeah. Re-traumatization. And um, you, there, there can be a lot of different things to set that off. And um, I don't know if I have the best advice for this. I'm going through it myself as well. And I feel like, you know, everybody kind of processes differently. So um, I don't know that I could give advice that would help everybody in that situation. I know for, for me, um, you know, and, and the women who are coming to me with, with more stories, you know, I lose sleep over that. <laughs> I'm lying awake in bed thinking, what can we do to help, you know, help this situation? And um, how can I help care for this person? And, and I'm, then I'm turns to anger because I'm like, why aren't the church leaders up at night over this stuff? Like, you know, some of them will pass, pass these victims to me. And I think, well, I'm glad that you're, you know, connecting victims, but at the same time, how, how are we not saying, let's put a stop to this, let's get ahead of this. And I think it's so empowering for um, victims to be a part of real change, but it's, it's so slow and so painful at the same time. So I think that each person needs to kind of assess what their own um, spiritual health is at that moment and what they can handle. So, you know, for some, I think it'll be, I can't be on social media. You know, I can't hear all this stuff. It's killing me, you know? And, and for others, it's gonna be, you know, I feel like, you know, maybe I have a platform where I can help, um, help in different ways with this. And, and, and I feel good about doing that, but I think we need to be realistic, you know, of what the cost of that is. And I know my husband's always, you know, re-talking to me about that part of it because it costs a lot. And, but then I also think, well, that's why so many people don't, don't do anything because it costs something. Um, and it, and it does seem to cost the women more. So I just, I think that for each person it's different, but I think that, you know, time, time in the word, I think you need a, a good local church. And um, I mean, I know for me, the relationships that I have in my local church, like that is what keeps me grounded. Um, you know, I'm in a, like a, we have like growth groups is what they're called at small groups in, in my church, man, I can't tell you how that got me through um, to have that, you know, raw prayer time, um, you know, just being able to stay really where you are with things and it's safe. Um, so I think, you know, good relationships, godly relationships are so important. Um, and then to assess, it's going to be different for each person, how involved you can get in this stuff. I have a question before we wrap up this conversation, just to kind of shift gears a little bit. Um, we've talked about what it's like to maybe be directly involved in the, the abuse of certain leaders. Um, but I'm also thinking about people who haven't experienced 
the abuse directly, who just maybe really look up to these people like Robbie as speakers, as apologists, as whatever it might be. But then you experience this breach of trust. Like you've looked to these people as a source of spiritual nourishment in, in a sense. And then you discover this about them. And there's just such a profound disillusionment that you experience. And you start to question, you know, is, is any of this real? I mean, these are people that I really trusted and really looked up to. And now I'm finding that everything that they said, you know, maybe not, it's, maybe it's not everything that they said, but like they lived a lie. So how do I process that in terms of in healthy ways without uh, leading to some sort of crisis of my own faith, but then also moving forward, how do we think about the kind of trust that we give to leaders and to maybe higher profile people who we look up to? What does it mean to have like more responsible forms of trust? Because we don't want to... I mean, we know the problems with trusting people just implicitly, right? But we also know the problems of then turning around and being cynical and closed and saying, well, I can't trust anybody at all. So what are some healthier forms of trust and how do we process these things in a healthy way? I, I see this as being more acute in the American context. You, you have far more of a propensity to worship heroes uh, particularly in ministry, you you do not you do not get this much in Australia. I know this because I know how I get treated in America compared to the way I get treated in Australia. So you know, I I go to America. Yeah, I I, I get like these like you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm I'm meeting Michael Bird, the Michael Bird. And so my you know, very I, first ETS conference, um, I'm walking with Mike down a corridor, and uh, Mike stops to talk to another scholar. And two guys walk past, and then one of them has a copy of uh, How God Became Jesus in his hand. And he says, do you know Mike Bird? I'll give you $10 if you can get his signature for me in the front of his book. Wow. And the, the inner Australian in me, and the outer Australian actually as well, said, grow up and ask him yourself. <laughs> now, in Australia, it'd be a lot more like, hey, Mike, do you write, do you write books? Yeah, bet you probably think you're pretty smart, don't you? Um, so it's a com it's a complete. So I th I think this is a little bit more unique to the American context. That kind of um, uh, hero worship, um, the devotion, the dedication, and that that and as I think we've seen, that is dangerous. It's dangerous for the accountability of the organization. Okay, uh, but it's also I think it's dangerous spiritually. Uh, the only person you should worship is the Lord God Almighty, okay? That, that is, so hero worship, you know, you can admire, you know, um, leaders, okay? But even that's got to be got to be qualified because people become what they admire. Now, now that's, that's, that's a big lesson, particularly to some, some of the young Theo bros, you know, be careful what you admire because you become what you admire, okay? So be very careful where you place your admiration, okay? And what I think we need is, is you know, on the one hand, I think the Australian, the Australian scene is a little bit very pessimist. We have a thing called tall poppy syndrome. Anyone, anyone who starts doing a little bit too success, we want to cut them down and put them back in their place. Um, so we, we, we have the, we have maybe the opposite problem, but, you know, but you've got to remember with, with leaders and, and uh, I think it was the old Scottish Puritan, uh, Robert Murray McShane, I think put it well. He said, the best of men 
are men at best, you know, and you've got to remember that uh, they are only men or they're only women. They're fallible. Okay. They're sinners. They make mistakes. They have mood swings. They experience the same temptations as we do. And, and putting them up into some sort of um, alpha male Pope status, I think is a really, really bad idea because you're setting them up for a fall. Okay. They're setting them up. You're setting them up for a fall. So I think we need not a kind of skepticism towards our leaders. You need respect, you know, give credit where credit is due and the odd follow and the odd listen to people who are doing good work and have a good word and uh, who are clearly gift and, and blessed in what they do, but don't go to the point where, you know, you're into the, you're going from respect or admiration into devotion and worship. Okay. So be a supporter, not a sycophant. Okay. Uh, be, be an admirer, not the high priest of the personal cult. I think, I think that, 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 that's, that's what you've got to learn to differentiate respect from blind devotion. And that applies not just, I think in, in church ministry, that can apply in politics or sport or just about anything. Uh, but I, I wouldn't go to the extreme thing of being cynical, cynical and skeptical and of anyone who's kind of achieved anything. You know, you, you, you can admire and respect people for what they're doing for the good and, and support them. But, yeah, I mean, respect and devotion are two different things. When we put somebody on a pedestal like that, we start separating their personal persona or their leadership persona and their, their public persona is what I'm trying to say from the man or the woman that they actually are. And what's happened, I think, with Ravi Zacharias, and it was a temptation for me, too, because of where I held him as integral to my faith and development and stepping into academia and all that stuff, there's a real big temptation to be like, yeah, but, right? Yeah, but. Like, mm -hmm. Ravi, did, yeah, yeah, but. But his books are still good. But his talks are still good. But his influence is still there. And it's just a, it's a crazy thing that us Americans do is we hold people and we can actually separate them from their actual private persona to the point where the guy is dead. We're like, don't speak ill of the private guy that's dead, but just follow his public persona still. And I think that's just sick and dangerous. And this is where we need a bit of Soren Kierkegaard, as Amber would no doubt take an interest in, according to Soren Kierkegaard, as you have lived, so you have believed. Am I right, Amber? Probably. I haven't heard that. I haven't read that exact quote, but it might be in the journal somewhere. That's what you say whenever there's like a, a quote it's in the journal somewhere. <laughs> it's in a journal. It's it's one of his notes. One of those. Um, it's very Kierkegaardian, like yeah. in terms of the way that you actualize uh, your actual existence tells you what you believe more than just what you think about things. Exactly. So we, we know what Zacharias really believed because we know how he lived. And that's what I think we should remember about him. You could say, oh, but he had these great Christian beliefs. He just, you know, kind of had this like side deal. It's like, no, we know what the guy really believed because of the lies he manufactured around him, the lifetime of deceit, deception, you, you know, whatever perversion the, 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 the dude was into. We, we now know what his creed was because that's how he lived. Okay, and that's not an aberration from his beliefs. It expressed his true beliefs. And there is the tragedy. There is the lesson. So, Mike, one of the things we've seen here in Australia in the last couple of weeks is in federal parliament, we've had uh, such a crisis of leadership. Um, and you, we've seen the, the Praetorian Guard of dude bros leaning in to protect one another. 
But at the same time, what we've also seen is um, men, Australian men, um, stepping up to the plate and actually uh, calling the, the sort of behaviour out for what it is. How do you see that happening, um, or how can how how would you say that we we should do that as Christian men uh, in these environments? Um, and how can we support our sisters who are going through um, this the abuse and gaslighting uh, that so often occurs? Yeah, I mean, for those who don't follow Australian politics very closely, which I'm guessing is just about everyone here except for me and uh, Chris, there's been a number of sex scandals in Parliament. There was uh, one um, staff worker uh, in a politician's office who was sexually assaulted, uh, allegedly sexually assaulted, in case the lawyers are listening, uh, by another uh, another sort of staff member and this and then it subsequently found out that this other staff member has also been accused of, of, of a myriad of other uh, harassment offenses and the like and then all these other things have come out like this um political staffers face group who would make videos of them masturbating on the tables or the desks of female members of parliament and like it's like it was like some really weird creepy stuff and you know were and then some of the actual political leaders themselves were they defending the abusers were they holding these people to account and there was all sorts of things going so it's been a big scandal at the moment yeah so i mean you've got all these things going on and uh one of the uh, uh a female member of parliament uh, allegedly said to the one of the, the the victims of sexual assault called her a lying cow you know, and that's that's from one woman to another. And this has raised a whole bunch of issues. And then we've had our attorney, attorney general also accused of historical um, sex abuse allegations going back to when he was like 17. And, you know, what's the proper way to investigate that? Do you do it through the parliament or do you do it with like the Australian Federal Police? So at the moment, there is a lot of this issue of power, authority and abuse happening within the Australian Parliament. And there has been a little bit of that sort of Praetorian Guard trying to, you know, dumb it down, cover it up, or people saying, oh, well, I never knew or I never knew, or heard about it or anything. But there has been a lot, of, uh, a lot of other people standing up saying, look, we have got to stop this, okay? Uh, no one who works in Parliament should ever go there expecting that they could be sexually assaulted or anything like that, okay? So there are people who are saying we need reform. They will hopefully revise the parliamentary and staffers code of ethics. They'll also create a particular advocacy group within within the parliamentary um, you know, employment network uh, that will help uh, victims of abuse or harassment. So that this is in Australia, this is a very, very live issue at the, the various uh, highest echelons of political power about sexual abuse and harassment, principally of women uh, w within government buildings. So, Mike, how would you extrapolate that to the church, as in the advocacy? We need to be advocates for women or anyone uh, who has a an, an allegation of of abuse. They should, all claims should be taken seriously, uh, investigated independently, impartially, and fairly. So I think that now the question is, how do you do that? And that that's where within the church system, it's probably going to vary, you know, whether you're you know, within a Presbyterian system, Episcopal or Baptist, whatever. But if you think that is the idea where there is going to be a, you know, fair, uh, impartial, imp 
uh, independent investigation where a woman does not have to stand before uh, a room of her accuser's friends, okay? Something like that, I think it's what we're going to need. And then each different church body organization has got to come up with the best way to realize that. I don't know. I mean, that's 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 my initial thinking. I'd love to hear what Amy, Amy, what Amy thinks about since you've been some of these processes. Uh, I where can't you... tell you how um, different it is and how much more effective it is when a man joins his voice to the woman's voice and advocates for her. Um, it, and it's, it's interesting because you feel so alone <laughs> in it, but then I've watched a pattern of where there, you know, the men who have um, stepped in, in my case, in, in different ways, um, see abusers, and, and we need to learn the tactics of abuse. I think that's a major problem is that we're not educated. But abusers will then punish anybody who comes to their aid. Any advocate they get is going to be punished. And so these men do have to pay a price when they come forward. And it's been very interesting to watch um, how it physiologically affects them to the point that they can become sick. Um, and, it, and when I see that happening to men like Empower, um, I think, well, you know, you've been, you've been shamed and, and harassed like this, this one time. <laughs> I've been enduring this for two years, you know, and so it, it just shows though it's, it's validating in one sense, like how awful it is and how hard it is to handle. And so, you know, there's power in, in numbers. And I think that that's really important, but it, it's for the men to, to not only join with the woman's voice, but consult the woman's voice like you were saying earlier, Mike, um, is so important because I can't tell you how many times too, there'll be, you know, helpful men coming in wanting to, to help. And then they'll take it from here. You know? <laughs> and then they have their yeah. meetings about you. And then, and so that's so strange too, because um, they don't see with the same eyes that the vulnerable see with. I think one thing men need to learn as well is that women experience the world differently. Uh, and this, yeah. this, someone pointed this out to me and I said, you know, like when you went from the, from the pub to your car, uh, what happened? You know, I just like kind of walked out the pub and walked to my car and they said, yeah, for a woman, that is a completely different experience. Okay. You've got to be far more. Too. Yeah. Far more. You'll be far more of it. So even just things like, you know, walking to your car, women experience, women experience the world, um, differently. And I think, I mean, once, once men can think about that uh, and, and realize that there is, there is a different way of experience in the world, so people don't experience the way the world that you do, you know, that I think gets them to think about things like, you know, it's one thing to have a meeting about abuse. It's another thing where, you know, you're a woman and the only woman in the room. Um, earlier, Mike, you mentioned that Ravi, you know, when the stuff about Ravi came out, that it was clear that he wasn't just a guy who had a moment of infidelity, but that he was a serial predator. And this, this is one thing that shocked me and frustrated me the most about the reaction and the way that men continued to defend him, even after that came out, was people were defending him as if it was a moment of infidelity, a momentary lapse, one instance of falling instead of yeah, serial predation over such a long period of time. And especially, I don't know if any of you guys saw on social media, but but 
when men defended him, there was always this rhetoric of that could have been me, right? But for the grace of God, there would I have gone. And I just thought that those comments were so surprising and frustrating and ridiculous. And so I don't know if either of you have any thoughts about that, but how, how could there be this inability to distinguish between like a momentary lapse versus a prolonged period of serial predation and sin? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you've got to appreciate the difference. It's it's one thing that you make one serious mis- misjudgment or you flirt with temptation and go way too far with it. I mean, that's one thing. But where you've basically cultivated these relationships, this sort of, you know, cone of secrecy and these devices, that shows real um, intent and malice. And there, there is no kind of like, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys or, you know, he had a bad day. Uh, he wasn't a good place mentally and he, he made a mistake. I mean, this, this is this is this is different. And this isn't, you know, there for the grace of God there go I this is more on the case of you know don't 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 turn into the very thing you should despise I mean that that that's my thing you know don't become the very thing that 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 you should despise and look down on and say that that is one of the worst possible things not just a Christian but I think a, a human being could become a kind of predator who preys on women for his own selfish gratification with no thought of their value, their rights, um, their, their welfare, or any care with them, who just sees other human beings as something to be, to be um, um, used for his own, own diabolical and indulgent ends. There is a big difference, you know, between, I think, what we're seeing. And if people can't see the difference, then there is something a little bit warped in their moral compass, or at least in the way they, they rate a hierarchy of sins. You know, it's it's one thing to say, I, I enjoyed watching a little bit too much of Bridgerton, you know, um, on the airplane. I probably shouldn't have been watching um, that episode, or maybe I should have fired. I mean, that's one thing. But when you're kind of, you know, establishing um, residences in other countries, and 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 finding vulnerable uh, people that you can use as sort of in, in some sort of sexual servitude. You you are going in deep into the bowels of depravity, uh, and and you you have be, you have become something that is not of God, not of Christ. And dare I say, you've even come into partially, I think, an anti-human state because this is what not this is not what humanity or human beings were created to do which is to exploit other human beings. And Paul uses very strong language in 1 Thessalonians 4. Don't ever let your church become a place where anyone can exploit another person, okay? You do not allow that environment to, to become even possible where you can ex- exploit one another. Right now I'm reading through The Great Sex Rescue, and I mean, I'm just thinking, you know what? It was an atheist who exposed this guy. <laughs> he knew how wrong it was. but the very way that our best-selling Christian books teach about sex, you know, could lead to those kind of excuses because, you know, we're being taught that the man has his needs and he needs to release them every 72 hours. And if he doesn't, you know, it's his wife's fault. He's going to look elsewhere, you know, and it's all about male pleasure. (laughs) And it's not about intimacy and knowing and any kind of, you know, becoming one. Um, there's, there's no gospel in it at all. 
So, I mean, I think that there's multiple layers to this, like the very obvious things that Jennifer and Mike are saying, um, our own books that are, you know, the best-selling books and the sold at the conferences at, you know, a very wide evangelical level being taught in our church churches about sex dehumanizes us. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I was always ambivalent towards Mark Driscoll, but the one thing I knew I was not going to buy a sex book from this guy. Um, <laughs> you know, a lo- long time ago, I decided, yeah, I know, I know, I know he's, um, he's a, he's a frat boy who can preach and he preaches some storm up when he gets in the mood, but I have no interest in, in getting sex yeah. ed from this guy. And I was a right. little bit like, but, and, and the other thing I had to ask was, and why would anyone, you know, um, Right. It's one thing if you're like a, a medical practitioner that helps people or, or couples with, you know, that aspect of their marriage. But mm-hmm. what what makes this dude an expert? What's his what's his yeah. qualification? I mean, At, you well, know, and on a more conservative level, you know, for a um, parachurch organization I was working for, I was at a conference and um, we were recording podcasts there and. So the topic that year happened to be marriage and sex. I'm looking around and uh, the whole lineup of speakers is men. And the main speaker, I'm thinking, yeah, I do not. I have no desire to hear what this guy has to say. But I, you know, I went to the person in charge and said, hey, I noticed there's not, there's predominantly more men here. And I I might want to help you out on maybe you could (laughs) expand the audience, um, but if we're talking about marriage and sex, uh, half of that equation is missing in representation of the speakers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but that, that's that's a key example. Why wouldn't you have women? With, wouldn't have you know, women women's in needs the room. aren't even a factor, you know? Yeah, that's I mean, the whole thing. it is. It's like it's you know, you're going to have a great discussion on relationships, sex, marriage, and optional involve women. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that—that's the type of thing. That, that, that now that is the type of like no no brainer. It, it, that I just you know, I, it's one of those points where you yeah you know, when you're talking to someone and you say, I don't think you've really thought this thing through. You know, I don't think you've thought this through. There seems so, to be a lot of that though. I, you know. Yeah, but you, you want to talk about sex, sex, marriage, but having women involved is optional. Again, I just. This is how, you know, I think that that also answers Jennifer's question. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that this is a case of them not thinking something through. I think it is thinking something through. And the thought is, we don't actually need women here in the conversation (laughs) because we can say everything that needs to be said and we can tell women what they need to hear as well. So, sorry, that, well, that's, that's indicative of the big problem. We don't need, we're talking about sex, but we don't need to involve women. I mean, I just, I just don't know where that's where, where, where you can go with that. Uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna end up in a very lonely place, or they've got some real relationship issues going on there of some kind. Anyway, I think we're do- dwelling on that a little bit too much. But yeah, but if it's a marketing decision that this is purely men talking about this issue and and talking about women and to women, but not talking with women, then 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 whenever you add to that things like power and authority and church and that my friends i believe is the issue talking to women about them but not talking with them 
okay and, and denying them a voice and agency and th that i would call you is the is the patriarchy of all evil in that very very concept i, I was gonna say too i bet there's a bit of like indiscret like discretion about like oh if a woman is talking to me about sex at a conference i might get tempted you know what i mean oh interesting yeah okay. Very just, interesting. Just, just another goofy layer to add to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Well, so, that, so that'd be my... weird if if the audience is still filled with men. That can becomes even weirder. <laughs> well, Amy and Mike, thank you both so much for being with us uh, to talk about such a very difficult topic. But we really appreciate your uh, insights and what you had to share with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I think it's so important to keep this conversation going um, and for more people to be talking in healthy ways about it. So thanks for having me on. And I love talking to you guys. And I love listening to you as well. Keep doing the podcast. I love it. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be on the Two Cities podcast. Love the work. Hope to see you in the future.